ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to their fine Thoughts on Film podcast that we've got in store for you. My name is Scott, and I'm joined today by Drew. Hello there. We spoke in our last enthralling episode about some of our favourite stop-motion animated films, and though the eagle-eared amongst you may have noticed there was an egregious absence, that little Oregon studio named Leica. That was not a snub, but an honour, as we now spend this entire episode covering all other output. Yes, they've produced a number of films that we quite like a lot, so we thought we'd give them the honour of doing uh, a full rundown on everything. There's still a few on here that I actually hadn't seen, so it was good to catch up with those too. Yes, we'll be covering some of my favourite films over the past uh, 15 years, couple of decades, when, forget exactly when Coraline came out, but yes, lots of great films to be talking about now. Shall we start then with their first uh, output with the lovely little film called Coraline? Yes, um, as Scott said, like his first feature film, after years of doing adverts and contract work, and had in fact worked on Tim Burton's Corpse Bride, it immediately got the studio on my right side by turning out to be a horror movie that's any good at all. <laughs> yes, this is me, not so some, some sort of pod person replacement. <laughs> not scary, obviously. I've long since given up my quest to find a film that frightens me, assuming them to be as worthy a subject of pursuit as those things featured in Leica's most recent film, of which more later, but decidedly, genuinely creepy. That it is based on a children's book, albeit a Neil Gaiman one, is even more remarkable. Coraline Jones, voiced by Dakota Fanning, has recently moved with her mum and dad, John Hodgman and Terry Hatcher, into the Pink Palace Apartments, a large old house now subdivided into three smaller homes. As her parents are busy with work for their business, Coraline has left her own devices, exploring the house and its environs. And during this time, she encounters the creepy Wymie, the grandson of the owner of the Pink Palace, as well as her neighbours, the rodent-training Russian eccentric Mr. Rubinsky, Ian McShane, and the retired, bickering burlesque performers Miss Spink and Miss Forcible voiced by French and Saunders. Coraline also discovers, or rather is led to discover, a small and curious door in the living room, far too small to be created for human use. So one night she opens the door and finds a tunnel, which she, of course, enters. What kind of a species would we be if we didn't crawl through creepy, impossible purple tunnels hidden in our walls? I ask you. <laughs> Upon leaving the tunnel... Coraline finds herself in her own house again. Yet, it's not quite her house, nor indeed her own world. Everything is better and brighter, more polished, more colourful, with a nicer garden and tastier food and, most crucially, with better parents, who are funny and attentive and have time for Coraline. Indeed, everything is an idealised version of the real world, with Coraline's other mother, eager to ensure that everything is perfect for her daughter. A little too eager. And there's something else. Oh, yes. All of the people have large buttons in place of their eyes. I'll make things a bit uncomfortable. As Coraline spends more time in this fantasy world, witnessing rodent circuses and... interesting, shall we say, stage shows, (laughs) she begins to feel the wrongness of it aided quite a bit here by Keith David's talkative cat, and to fear the hunger and desperation of the other mother. In reality, the Beldam. That's from a Middle English word associated with witches and fairy folk, who wants to love her in a way that'll see her end up like Lenny Small's various pets. Still, the world is tempting to Coraline, who feels a bit neglected by her real parents. But she does balk a bit at the cost of membership. 
All of these veggies can be yours in exchange for your eyes. Look, my manager will kill me if he finds out, but I'll even throw in these button replacements. What do you say? <laughs> Just pop out your eyes and let the nice lady put buttons in her place. <sighs> like I said, Coraline is creepy and dark and strange and utterly, utterly wonderful. Having shown he could do cartoonish monstrosity in The Nightmare Before Christmas, director Henry Selick shows he can also do unsettling and, well, monstrous monstrosity. (laughs) Genuine nightmare material. While it doesn't have the emotional heft of Kubo and the Two Strings, again, we'll come to later, Coraline is thrilling and effective and a lot of fun too. A melancholy score from French composer Bruno Coulet sets a suitably odd, otherworldly tone for the film, much more so than would have done the planned songs from They Might Be Giants. As a huge fan, I have some disappointment, but one song at least was kept, and it fits its scene well. And Coulet's score complements the visuals and story well, particularly with its clear debt to European folklore. The story, that is, rather than the music. <laughs> and I should probably mention the animation, which is, you'll not be surprised to hear me say, superb. Starting as they meant to go on, like as sets for Coraline and the action are ambitious, striking and wonderfully realised, with an impressive number of different locations and sets. After the massive success of Coraline, the studio would, in the future, be able to attract bigger names, but it was never necessary, with John Hodgman, Keith David, French and Saunders and Ian McShane, more well known for TV at the time, all being great. If there's a disappointment in the voice cast, it's Terry Hatcher, who is fine as the mum and the early version of The Other Mother, but doesn't seem to have the depth to fully sell the more sinister, truer version of the character. But that's a minor quibble in an otherwise excellent film. But I don't need to tell you that, because you know, because obviously you've seen it. Because only a monster wouldn't have seen it. And you're not a monster, are you? (laughs) Yes, I enjoyed this a great deal back in 2009, and I enjoy it just as much today, so that's nice to see. I meant to check, did we see this in 3D? I think so. I remember thinking that it was one of the few 3D films that actually worked in that regard because it gave a bit of kind of interesting texture to these uh, character designs because they're all kind of vaguely doll-related in some way. So it, it, it kind of worked in that regard. It was one of the interesting pieces of 3D technology. But even in this viewing, which was completely shorn of any such uh, foofery, uh, but it still works really, really well um, with some lovely character designs. Look, it's a horror film with a creepy doll in it that doesn't feel like a total cliche. <laughs> When's the last time that happened? Um, yeah, twenty oh nine with Coraline Scott. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's just lovely. Um, I love all the character designs. These little uh, the things they all feel very real. They all look great, and uh, the story itself is wonderfully creepy. I'm not the world's biggest Neil Gaiman fan, but he does seem to be able to pull out a lot of good stuff when he needs to, and this is some of his best. Obviously, it's an adaptation, but I've not read the source material. But yes, it's uh, clearly it has a lot of Gaiman-esque elements to its design, which all work very well. Yeah, I absolutely love this. It was an absolute joy to go back and watch this again. Yeah, it was funny. It's charming. It's almost surprising that it isn't like his best film because it's so good. But yes. they did better. And yes, um, for what is you say, the history means it's not quite their first film, but the first film under their own banner and their own steam, if you like. It's a hell of a calling card, and uh, yeah, yeah just a terrific piece of work. It's quite the bar to set for your first <laughs> yeah. first release, isn't it? It's interesting you mentioned 3D. I was thinking about that a little bit too, but I'm fairly certain that when we saw this, good, 11 years now, scary, uh, yeah. that we saw it in 3D. 
and I think I had a similar thought to you is that it, it did have a kind of an interesting look. It's one of the few films that made that worthwhile. But having watched it on, I think it was straight to Blu-ray um, by that time, I had Blu-ray player, but um, on Blu-ray not long after that, again, it, that's one of the first times I really thought about stop motion animation. And I mentioned it in our last episode, Scott, that mm. I think one of the appeals of it is that it does have a kind of a more maybe because like the depth of field is so much more controlled and therefore more um, accentuating things, but it feels yeah. more 3D than a regular film without the glasses. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure how much of that was actually the 3D projection and how much was True. actually just the nature of the film itself. Yeah. And I did try to go and watch this in 3D this time because the Blu-ray has a 3D version on it. However, it's one of those old style red and green ones. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, I managed about four and a half minutes before I had to knock that nonsense on the head because that was not pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> the more modern 3Ds, um, 3D filming things, uh, they're still gimmicks, but at least you can see them, even if like, they're dark, whereas yeah. the old style red and green thing, uh, which is how they chose to present us on this disc, it's not good. It's not a pleasant experience at all. You cannot enjoy a film like that. So for a five-minute novelty thing, yeah. it's just about tolerable. But for watching it, no. no um, fortunately, the film looks kind of 3D without the need for such um, artifice. Uh, and it's just lovely. Yeah, don't have much else to add to that. I think I can't recall off the top of my head if this was my favourite film of 2009. If it wasn't, it would have definitely been in the running for it. Yeah, terrific piece of work and absolutely stunning still to this day. Well worth looking at. Indeed so. So they had a lot to live up to. So let's discuss whether or not they did, Scott, with Paranorman. Yes, in which it turns out that it's not just Haley Joel Osment who sees dead people, as young Norman Babcock of the historically witchy Burnley Blythe Hollow, Massachusetts, also sees and talks to the dead, most of whom talk back. Particularly his gran, much to the rest of his family's disbelief. A disbelief shared by the whole town, that has seen Norman roundly labelled and bullied as the weird kid, which, to be fair, is not entirely inaccurate. <laughs> he does make one living friend, Neil, although he does seem to be more comfortable talking to the deceased members of the town. There may, however, be a great deal more of them there dead people pretty soon, as we head into the 300-year anniversary of the town's famous witch-burning, if we are to believe Norman's uncle, who says he's been performing a yearly ritual to keep the witch's curse at bay, but needs Norman to take over on account of his imminent death. Turns out that we should indeed have believed him, as the dead rise from their grave, and the skies fill with something that, well, I'm reluctant to commit as to whether it's a wibbly thing or a swirly thing. It's up to Norman and his Scooby-Doo team of Neil, Neil's elder brother, and Norman's elder sister Courtney, and the school bully Alvin to work out a way to calm the storm, and, as it turns out, the spirit of the witch. At the risk of spoiling this entire episode, there's not a film we'll talk about today that I didn't like, and I very much enjoyed this revisit of Paranorman. Uh, given that it's sort of the point of this podcast, I should point out that my only real slight knock against the film is its story is a touch on the slight side. It's more than strong enough to maintain the film, though, so it's not really worth mentioning, but if you are watching this back to back the Coraline, you may find yourself missing the influence of the likes of Neil Gaiman on the story. Still, what's there is very far from bad, and it's augmented by a number of very funny jokes with great deliveries from the likes of Anna Kendrick, Christopher Mintzplass, Casey Affleck and John Goodman, and there's a few nice Easter egg type gags and references to other horror films for fans of that garbage. <laughs> um, 
we spoke last episode about Ardman having a distinctive style almost to the point of sameness, which is a, a trap I think Lyca do a solid job of avoiding. Uh, needless to say, in common with all of Lyca's works, it looks fantastic and it's a good jump in complexity and detail between this and the last film. And at the risk of spoilers, you can pretty much say that about all of the films. Maybe a slight exception of The Missing Link, but uh, yes, it's a solidly enjoyable film and even if perhaps the least weighty of Lyca's outings, it's a funny watch and well worth revisiting this Halloween. Yeah, I like Paranorman a lot. I liked it then. I thought I was like, yes, this isn't as good as Coraline, but well, what can you expect? Coraline was great. Yeah. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. There's some quite f- uh, interesting voice stuff going on there. I mean, instantly recognisable. John Goodman's always a good value for money. Yeah. We're big fans from around here. It was quite a surprise to get the end. I'd forgotten most of the cast get to the end credits of this and find out that the older brother was voiced by Casey Affleck, though I did not recognise him <laughs> at all. Yes, yeah, oh. it's, it's, it's not quite up there as, as performance as a ghost story in terms of the commitment to the method, but it's getting there. <laughs> Although um, it's not as not the same degree as to the film we'll get onto next, but it does make me wonder sometimes why you cast certain people in a role if you're not going to use their voice when, like, how they do it. It could be anybody because they're not necessarily bringing anything, any particular great performance to the role. Yeah. Well, you've got somebody like a like a Mike Myers doing a voice in Shrek. Well, then part of it is that he's doing this voice, and it's, there's a performance to that voice. Yeah. But when you're having somebody just do like a, and he's absolutely not the the main example of this, but you have somebody not really sounding like themselves, and then it could be anybody. Why are you doing that? Especially when it's not the biggest name that's going to get you like more bums and seats because you've got this big star in it or anything like that. It's a curious yeah, choice or, or why, or why it's not someone who's a. a uh, a voice actor by career doing that sort of mm-hmm. stick, um, rather than someone who's arguably wasn't even that big a name at the time. Yeah, yeah strange. But, um, it's strange. That it's, uh, and I think we mentioned in the last episode, and it's we've mentioned it before, and we will again. I think with animated stuff, the the choices they make for voice actors sometimes is so strange. And if it's a really big name, then you can understand it because it's you're looking for the appeal of that name to bring in customers. In which case, I guess it really counts as stunt casting. Mm. But other times, I, just, I don't really know why you're you're suddenly paying more than you might necessarily need to for somebody who's, I'm not saying the performance is bad or anything, but when it's not recognisably them and they're not bringing anything in particular that just a solid voice actor is bringing, then I don't really see the point. Yeah. It's curious, but um, it's the next film, again, like I said, that, that's got the biggest example of that in Leica's work, I think. Yes. Um, and sorry, Scott, just to, to pop back a moment to Coraline, just because I looked it up while you were speaking. Mm. We are talking about films in 2009. I think Coraline was up there at the top, but for me, it, it films released in 2009, the top had to be the heart locker, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, really what the best films were in that year were Avatar and 2012 and A Twilight Film and Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Um, all of those and the, um, the second... <laughs> Da Vinci Code film. So, well, that's a free market for you. I guess that's been decided. Uh, that's how we voted you know, with our wallets. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, it's just another year in which everybody was wrong, um, and it scares <laughs> me. Coraline's box office not even touching the lowest of those. Yeah, uh, it saddens me. <laughs> it really does. But are you saddened by their next film, The Box Rolls? Yes, that'll actually. do. That'll do. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately it's in a segue that works because yes, yes I am another children's book, Alan Snow's Here Be Monsters, serves as the basis for Lyca's third feature, The Box Trolls as Scott said, which sees the town of Cheesebridge 
and its coagulated milk product obsessed denizens plagued by an infestation of baby snatching underground monsters. These monsters are the box trolls, shy, harmless creatures who obtain their names from the discarded boxes from which they create clothing. They're a bit womble-like too, though they go a bit beyond simply making good use of the things that the everyday folks leave behind. (laughs) Going with the logic that it stands to reason that this perfectly good cartwheel or this perfectly good cart will eventually get left behind, (laughs) so we'll just take it now since it's going to happen anyway and save everyone the trouble. That's their biggest crime though, except for the clearly unforgivable ones of being different and looking a bit funny. (laughs) So it's a mystery why they have in their midst a human child, Eggs, Game of Thrones, Isaac Hempstead Wright, that they have raised since a baby and who doesn't even realise he's a human. The answers to this mystery may lie with Archibald Snatcher. Despite everything about the character and the voice screaming Timothy Small, He's voiced by an unrecognisable Ben Kingsley, the leader of the red hat wearing box troll exterminators, who desires more than anything the right to don one of the white hats of the city's big cheesies. Yes, big cheesies. Sadly, that's the level most of this script is operating at. And I love it. (laughs) And he's not going to let a simple thing like violent and disturbing lactose intolerance stop him nor the inconvenient questions of the mayor's bratty but curious daughter Winifred, voiced by Elle Fanning. Said child eventually meets Eggs, and together they discover the fate of the box tools that Snatcher has snatched, and the reasons why he was raised by these timid creatures instead of his father. Neither they, nor we, will discover why Snatcher is also moonlighting as the beloved cabaret entertainer Madame Fru-Fru, though, this being a plot point that seems to go nowhere, except to make an almost offhand joke about regretted feelings that, in 2020, feels about as Victorian as the film's setting. <laughs> the whole cheese thing falls completely flat, too. It's not saying anything interesting or clever. The cheese obsession just seems to be because it'd be a bit weird if everyone was daft about cheese to the exclusion of everything else, wouldn't it? And then allows for a few lame puns. A fromage fixation might have been enough for the inciting incident of the 23-minute-long A Grand Day Out, but it can't carry the weight it's being asked to in this feature-length The Box Trolls. The Box Trolls is something of a case of style over substance, with neither the story nor the characters being anything like interesting enough. And style it certainly has, along with Laika's typical disdain for the easy way to do anything. Snatcher's steampunk vehicle in the finale is large complex, clearly phenomenally difficult to animate, but sadly, here, in service of pretty much nothing. And that's really the problem. It's full of pretty much nothing. It is, of course, expertly animated, typically ambitious and visually wonderful, but when your most interesting character is a henchman, and only interesting because it's voiced by Richard Ayoade, you have a problem. Frankly, it's boring, and very much like his low point as a feature film studio. Fortunately, things will get better. Oh yes. Uh, <laughs> although it sounds like maybe you, you have somewhat different feelings to myself in this one, Scott. To a degree, although I don't uh, disagree that it is their worst film, although I don't think it's a worst film that I would say is actually a bad film. Uh, this was the only time I've seen this film. I had a bit of a blind spot for this, something don't know, and got around to seeing it, and I enjoyed it well enough for my first, first uh, go-through. Unlike all the rest of them, though, I think it's a film that I, I, I don't intend to ever go back to. I think I've extracted everything that I needed to on that first view uh, viewing. There's 
a lot of cheese-based puns, and to be honest, that's good enough for me. <laughs> Who could be uh, so horrible a human being as not to appreciate the good old uh, punnery uh, basis of this? And yeah, there's some strong voice performances, somewhat weird in a few castings. You say Ben Kingsley, why? I, I don't know why you need to spend your budget on that. I mean, I don't think he does a bad job, to be clear. He, he gets across that very well. But yes, it, it doesn't. it is not very Ben Kingsley in the slightest. So, yes, And I'm sure Timothy Spall comes cheaper and he sounds like Timothy <laughs> Spall. Is he basically, yes. if you know Timothy Spall as the Beadle in Tim Burton's um, Sweeney Todd. Mm-hmm. It's basically the same character. <laughs> it's like yeah. s- very much like I'm slightly kind of angrier rather than um, greasy and obsequious. But it's basically that. It's like Timothy Small would come a lot cheaper rather than getting an Oscar winner to yeah. sound not <laughs> at all like himself. Yeah, but yeah, there's that. I, I like Nick Frost and Richard Ayoade and all that uh, as well. Um, but it's mainly impressive just on the, as you say, on the technical level. Uh, just the visuals of it are. Again, very distinctive from, I think, the rest of um, their work. Yeah. Um, I was actually surprised I didn't do enough research into working out that this was based on someone else's story because the story is clearly the weakest thing that's there, which is unusual. Because I thought, if I recall correctly, Paranormans, like an original work. I believe so, um, yeah. Yeah. And I thought this was just another kind of one of their kind of baby steps in towards what they actually blossomed into with Kubo and the Two Strings, just to spoil that somewhat a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, that it's a adaptation has thrown me a little bit because yes, I was going to say that was clearly the weakest part of it. And if, it's, if that's not even like his fault, then maybe I'm not going to uh, harp on that too much. But yeah, the rest of it is, is it's fun. I, I, I enjoyed it well enough for watching it through the once. Um, it raised a few laughs. I quite like the visual design. And as you say, it's another evolution of Leica being mental in what they're prepared to do to put a film on screen because yeah the amount of work as is kind of alluded to in the little um post credits scene i suppose mm. you could call it um where they're talking about the, the just the the animation required to do even the basic stuff let alone this um steampunk monstrosity that's been designed by Ben kingsley to capture trolls is uh really quite a quite an achievement and yeah it's going off kind of visual as you, as you say you're right on on the money with the style over substance thing i think there is enough style there to kind of warrant viewing it once but yeah it's certainly not something i would be purchasing on uh, blu-ray and putting in your in, into the vaults but yeah I, I enjoyed it well enough this first time through but yeah i'm, I'm probably never going to go back to this again this was my second viewing just like do add the puns normally i love puns I, I think you know that about me scott um yeah sometimes the worst cheese. So. Sometimes the worse the better. So um, <laughs> I don't know whether I appreciated puns more the last time, but it just seemed like that's all it had, and some of them weren't great. Although I do admit, I, I kind of snort laughed at the. There's it's called is it Cottage Street or Cottage Cheese Street? It's like Curds Way turns into it, and yeah. then you get a little <laughs> hit from the one man band that's there too. Like, yeah. <laughs> like okay, I like that. But most of the rest of the stuff, apart from maybe the the huge cheese they buy, which they call the Breer Moth. Yes. <laughs> um, they weren't doing a lot of them this time. However, I will add a proviso that when I rewatched this last night, I was incredibly tired. I barely slept the night before and I had to get up early. And so I was in fine to stay awake. So it's not mm-hmm. the best situation to watch in. But so how much that coloured my enjoyment of it this time. But when I watched it the first time a few years ago, I thought it was okay, and no more than that. Whereas mm. in this rewatch, I liked it substantially less. 
So yes, yeah. it's not a sort of film I'm suggesting that gets better with rewatch. No, it's like yeah, once maybe. Yeah, yeah. That's it, and it's the lack of substance that's the problem. It's it's just such beautiful animation, and as you said, none of their films look like their other films. Yeah, each they've created a, a very distinctive style for each film, so it looks great and it has its own unique look. And it's and I just I, I don't see the point of it. It's <laughs> the story does nothing for me so you're just watching the animation and I mean, that's enjoyable enough and, and none of these films are particularly long films but I still by the end of this I was really my attention was wandering even with the fact that I was desperate to sleep yeah, um, yeah. and you could say well you could watch another time but well we're recording this today and I didn't have time I had not watched it yet so. <laughs> yeah. but it's um, it's definitely not their strongest work which is a real pity um, and the fact they, they hit such a low point after only their third film that's um that's not great. Yeah. But yes, as I as I said, Scott, things will get better. Substantially better. So still can't think of a good uh, segue. So Kubo, Scott, <laughs> tell us about Kubo. <laughs> Kubo and the two strings, which we have spoken about at some length back at the turn of twenty sixteen in the intermission episode, and then again in the following episode where we named it our film of the year. And spoilers. <laughs> it's also showed up in a clip show episode, so you are forgiven if you want to skip this review. Um, <laughs> however, I will try and keep this brief. Indeed, the briefest form is simply to reiterate that it was our film of the year in 2016 and nothing has happened in the intervening years to make reconsider that opinion. Right, but back in feudal Japan, when myths and legends still stalked the land, there lived a one-eyed young boy, Kubo, caring for his ill mother, earning money by storytelling and animating origami with a magical shamisen. But he must return from the village to their homely cave before night falls, lest, as his mother's stories say, the evil moon king and his minions find him to claim Kubo's other eye. Turns out, however, that the stories his mother tells Kubo belong in the non-fiction section of the library, so one day Kubo does stay out to take part in a festival, hoping to communicate with the spirit of the father he's never known. Said Moon King and evil minions show up to cause ocular bother for a protagonist. Kubo's mother uses the last of her magic to spirit Kubo away to temporary safety, along with an animated monkey charm, now an actual monkey, called er monkey, and <laughs> Little Hanzo, an origami figure based on Kubo's father. They're soon joined by a reincarnated samurai, sort of, in huge beetle form, called uh, Beetle, who claims to have been one of Hanzo's as best as he can remember, which isn't very well, suffering from amnesia as he does. Together they must complete Hanzo's quest for the sword unbreakable, the breastplate impenetrable, and helmets invulnerable, and go and punch the moon king in his stupid moon face. And maybe, just maybe, along the way, they'll all find out more truths about Kubo's past and his family. Now... Good gravy. Kubo and the Two Strings is an astonishingly beautiful film, both visually and narratively, uh, but perhaps we first talk about visuals. Of course, as mentioned, all of these films are, but this has a great variety of strikingly lovely characters and creature designs, and the scale of some of them is mind-boggling, requiring a mind-boggling amount of work to animate and uh, realise. The characters are also strikingly well realised, both visually and through great vocal performances from the likes of Matthew McConaughey, Charlie Theron, Art Parkinson, Rudy Mara and Ralph Fiennes. The story is in equal parts funny, action-packed, intelligent, epic and touching. In short, it's an incredible film, and if you haven't seen it, you are missing out on 
well, the best film of 2016. <laughs> and if that's not rec- enough of a recommendation for you, I don't know what is. It is arguably the best quote-unquote kids film that doesn't have a Studio Ghibli ident in front of it. Yeah, wonderful piece of work, and I loved coming back to it again. Yeah, it, it's just so beautiful, and I definitely wasn't crying at several points all the way through this film, Scott. Yes, yes, me uh, neither. Definitely it's not a thing me that either. happened. Yes. Yeah, it's, it continues to just be an amazing film. It's means as I said like talking about the box shows you could have like beautiful visuals if you don't have the story to back it up it's it's nothing this has yeah. both in yeah. spades and I mean if I just did you stuck with the the animation here if, if you know anything about stop motion animation at all you know how painstaking it is how difficult and slow and yet <laughs> like every film is like well let's try and make this more difficult if we can because <laughs> yes. don't like the easy way we, we, we look down upon that I mean, there's so many examples. Like, if you know, again, if you know anything about it at all, there's this, not even in like kind of action climaxes or anything. There's a scene right near the start of Paranorman, where Norman's visited by uh, Mister Prendergast, John Goodman's character as a ghost, in the toilet, and you're seeing the cubicle walls bulge and the floor ripple. And I'm, I'm watching this, thinking, <laughs> how much work was that for a scene that's set up the story but doesn't actually matter and, like, yeah. and that's what they're doing for an establishing scene <laughs> yeah um where just in part a small bit of information uh it's incredible and here what they did was uh yeah well, you see those table stakes and go yes no all in let's, let's, let's animate millions of bits of paper flying around the place um, like, the hello hello previous us hold current us he's pint <laughs> because like, i mean Yes, there are computers used in the production because, well, they'd be stupid not to use the tools available to them. So there's sometimes there are computer-generated backdrops. They use a lot of computer for compositing because film things are filmed against green screen. But the actual animation is genuine stop-motion animation. It's all done by hand. Yeah, almost everything beyond like backdrops and things are physical sets, all handcrafted or three D printed and stuff. So it's all real, and they're all. Like every frame of animation is done by hand. And so what did they decide to do? Well, they'll have three small characters fighting <laughs> a giant skeleton warrior that in real life is, what, six, five or six metres high? Yeah. In its full form yes. with the legs? Yeah. That is insane. <laughs> they like is a byword for masochism. <laughs> and again... If you don't have a story, then it's not worthwhile. But in this, it's just it's just a wondrous story and a wondrous scene. And then in the back of your mind, is like, wow, that's like seriously technically impressive. And they've got everything going for them in this film in particular. Yeah. It's just an astonishing piece of work and an astonishing piece of art as well. And this film lost out on the Best Animated Feature Oscar to Zootopia. So... I need to stop bitching about the Oscars and how they're constantly wrong all the time because I keep saying I don't care about them and it's quite clear that I sort of care about them while trying not to care about them. But they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Zootopia was fine. It wasn't Kubo. Kubo was special. And yet, I don't have a point. I often don't have a point. Um, <laughs> but other than, you know, Kubo's awesome, you should see it. Yes, uh, a beautiful film in pretty much every sense of the word. So yes, uh, highly, 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 highly recommended. Yeah, so the only film missing from this podcast now is The Missing Link. True, what's that about? Yes, so um, this was sort of 
part of the reason we decided to do this because I'd been I'd somehow missed missing like coming out last year. It's only like a film yes. I hadn't seen. I was going to say I, I have no recollection of this appearing at all. I guess our Leica readers must have been switched off, but uh, yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, it's strange. It's like kind of I was I became aware of it like around about its blue at least now. Missing list. I like how did I not know about this? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> having somehow missed it. One of the reasons we decided to do these stop motion episodes now was like, well, I've been wanting to watch this anyway. We may as well put a theme around it, which seems to have worked out quite well because most of these films <laughs> have been very good. So Chris Butler returns to directing duties with like his most recent film, as of this recording, Missing Link, an adventure story about the British explorer and cryptozoologist Sir Lionel Frost, voiced by Hugh Jackman, and his determination or perhaps obsession, to be accepted into the Society of Great Men, a gentleman's club where he's considered a laughing stock. Chief among his detractors is Lord Pickett Dunsaby, Stephen Fry, a traditional Victorian adventurer. You know that description is doing a lot of work. <laughs> An all-round bounder and rotten egg, what? After yet another blundered expedition, in which Sir Lionel finds the Loch Ness Monster but fails to return with even a shred of proof, he discovers a hitherto overlooked letter, urging him to visit Washington State in the US and encounter a Sasquatch. This he duly does, and finds a, and indeed the only, Sasquatch, soon to be known as Mr Link. Mr Link turns out to have been the writer of the letter, and contacted Sir Lionel in order to engage his help in finding the home of the Yetis, his biological cousins and the only kin he has left. Sir Lionel agrees, and the two set off the Himalayas, along with Sir Lionel's old flame, Adelina Forthright. Things are complicated, though, by their pursuit by a hitman called Willard Stenk, who has been hired by Lord Pickett Dunsaway to ensure that Sir Lionel fails in his quest. It's quite, quite unthinkable that this missing link can exist, as we are descended from great men, not great apes. But, best just to be sure... Wouldn't want any inconvenient or embarrassing truth being proven, what? Like I have only produced five features, but Missing Link keeps up their impressive hit rate, with their only misstep thus far being the box trolls. It's a lighter film than what has gone before, both in terms of tone, see Coraline, and themes, Kubona Two Strings, but there's still some heart and substance in there, with themes of friendship and independence amongst others. And while the lighter nature may mean that it's in some ways a less satisfying film, it does also mean that it's like his funniest film to date. Much of that is to do with an inspired piece of voice casting for Mr Link, as Zach Galifianakis's style is pitch perfect for the slightly clueless, naive, but not stupid Sasquatch. Most of the rest of the voices are pretty good too, and well cast. Stephen Fry is just the right kind of voice for the pompous villain, and while Jackman isn't afforded much opportunity to really shine, he's at least very solid and likeable as Sir Lionel. Even Timothy Oliphant's stank is good. I say that having been often critical of Oliphant in the past. But if there's a problem, then it is Zoe Saldana's Adelina, the presumably Mexican woman who joins Sir Lionel and Mr Link on their journey. There are many Latin accents with which I'm unfamiliar, so I bear in mind I could be very wrong here, but to me her accent is pretty awful and certainly woefully inconsistent. And the reports that her accent took two and a half years to get right leave me considering that two and a half years (laughs) ill-spent. Of course, the visuals are king here. And in that regard, there was no disappointment, with the animation looking as wonderful and ambitious as you might expect. 
Actually, Laika's animations and compositions are now so smooth and so polished that at times they feel like they've lost a bit of the character and, well, jerkiness that gives stop-motion animation its charms. Yeah. You're too good, folks. Dial it back a bit. (laughs) On a slight tangent, I think here might be a good place to mention, well, as Scott has briefly mentioned before, the post-credit and mid-credit scenes in Laika films. Some of the very few such scenes worth sticking around for. Coraline's dancing mist mice, Paranorman's puppet construction, the meta self-deprecating conversation between Richard Iodi and Nick Frost, Nick Frost characters in the box trolls, Kubo and the Two Strings' three-metre-high skeleton torso, and here, another time-lapse showing the animation and composition of the large elephant models that heads towards the mountains. Putting important story points in your credits deserves a slap. <laughs> Putting scenes that increase your appreciation of filmmaker skills... That deserves a clap. <laughs> Slaps or claps? This is the, <laughs> the new metric for judging films. Yes, um, I, as mentioned at the top of this, hadn't seen Missing Link and I enjoyed it quite a lot watching this time through. Um, it is going to suffer, as probably every film that Laika does from now on, from being not as good as Kubo. But then again, <laughs> not as good as one of the best films of <laughs> of the last decade it does not mean that it is a bad film it certainly isn't it was very enjoyable um, as you say uh, lots of quite great performances and uh, nice to see um, like a branching out uh, story wise I guess you could say rather than just the character stuff as I think we try to get across none of these films look really like each other the way that say Arpen films do um, but you could make a case that they've been sticking a bit close to the kind of fairy tale slash light horror kind of motifs yeah. um, throughout their creation. And this is very different. I mean, okay, I suppose it has Sasquatches and Yetis in it, but not really. They're basically just big talking monkeys. And uh, yeah, so this is certainly a very different kind of film. It's it's closer to Around the World in 80 Days than anything else. Um, yes, it's very much got that sort of feel about it. And the yeah. kind of like the... The cartoon versions of those um, from mm-hmm. the same like French Japanese co-production studios, the, whoever they were that did Dog Catania and the Muskhounds as well. Yeah, got that yeah. kind of toned it in a wee bit yes. in the background. I feel, and and it works very well. It's very very light, breezy. I don't know if it's if, if I'm going a bit mad, but it almost feels like it's inspired by Uncharted games. It has a, the same kind of tone and kind of adventurous things to it. I don't know if that's just the way it's going for it. Um, I don't know if any little narrative dissonance in terms of the complete lack of um, ab, um, of oodles of murder, Scott. But yes, <laughs> yes. Going, not just because they go to the same place with Shambhala, but uh, yeah, I can see a wee bit of where you're you're getting that from. Yes, and yes, it's very enjoyable. Um, sad that I missed this first time round. Won't be their best film by any stretch of the imagination, but it's certainly a very good one and uh, very enjoyable character performances. Didn't I didn't even really mind what's her face as uh, is acting all that much. It's it suffices. Sadly, it's such a minor character; it doesn't, doesn't really uh, make all that much difference in the long term. But yes, and, and again, I'd be repeating myself at the end. But yes, just another terrific technical achievement on what they're doing with this. It's perhaps not the same kind of jump. Your film on film improvement from Kubo because Kubo was so great, and as you say, it's, it's, it is almost getting to the point where they're so good now that it is becoming like a actual three D animated CGI film. Um, they've managed to make stop motion look as good as like, as could possibly be done by computer animation. That's very weird to think, but yes, um, yes still uh, looks really good to me. Yeah, yes, it's not 
certainly there are points like the when they actually get to Shambhala mm. in particular it's really clearly stop motion animation but there are some scenes I think the opening scene in Loch Ness yeah. and a few other bits I think maybe it suffered a bit because those are the digital matte paintings yeah, for the backgrounds be, yeah. but it just it doesn't seem to have quite the character of stop motion animation and it's, it's looking too much it's like CGI is exactly what I was thinking Scott and that's disappointing again. It's just because they've, they've gotten too good at it. Yes. <laughs> so, like, I don't know if they're getting too, too good with their, their subtle movements in the animation. So it looks like less of that slight. I'm like, I'm like, I was looking for a better word than jerkiness when I was preparing my notes earlier. I couldn't really find one. There aren't any good synonyms for jerkiness that I can find or <laughs> I can think of. But you know that it's slightly. You know what I mean? If you've seen stop motion animation, it's what's one of the things that really marks out is the way characters move. And it's like, if someone managed to get so good at animating that, or whether they're doing some sort of interpolation in, the, in computers, possibly, yeah. I hope not, but that it's just it's slightly too smooth now and it, it's taken away just that bit of that character. Yeah. Um, and that's a bit disappointing because I think you need to leave a bit of that character in, and, and just so like in the back of your mind, you're aware that it's stop motion. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think you have a different appreciation therefore a different experience watching it if you know it's that kind of animation but yeah beyond that it's just it's it's just fun and it, i do think that it's good that they're they're branching out in terms of i mean it's not the strongest story but um it, yeah it's different from what's gone before it's a different type of tone different type of humor uh, and it's um even though it's some of the same writers and director before, it's the same people that did, wrote and directed Paranorman. It's the same writer of Kubo. Yeah. That So, like, they are able to, like, branch out, try a different thing, and it's worked here, which is great. So I'm just looking forward to the next thing they do. Yes, um, hopefully that will come out soon. This one, I think, was a bit of a commercial failure, and it definitely doesn't deserve that. Um, Absolutely not, no. Yeah. If you have missed on this by, which... I guess most people have by the that their box office failure. Um, yeah, definitely catch up with this. It is well worth a look, and I, I agree. I'm very much looking forward to what they come up with next. Apparently, lost over a hundred million dollars. That's yes. insane. Yeah, given how many like terrible films make all the money. Like, did I mention Avatar earlier? I think I may have done Scott. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's crazy because this is. I, I can see why it wouldn't blow up to a big success like mm. like a huge box office success but the fact is just like so many people so rather so few people seem to know about it yeah um and somehow like a, a big lego fan somehow it managed to pass me by yeah uh, it's like that's that's such a shame because it's really really good quality and then the the amount of work that goes into it is crazy yeah long may it continue so that will wrap us up for the day. Thank you all very much for attention. If you'd like to get in touch with us for this or any other reason, then please do so. Uh, we're on the emails at podcast at Fuds on Film or on Twitter. We're at Fuds on Film. And until next time, we catch up with a grab bag of whatever we've seen during this month. Uh, we shall bid you adieu. And I'm sure that Drew will do too. Hasta luego. Ta-ta! Ta-ta!